Welcome to the Sharkpreneur Podcast with Kevin Harrington and Seth Green. Kevin Harrington is the inventor of the infomercial, one of the original sharks from the hit TV show Shark Tank, and has generated over $5 billion in TV and digital direct response sales. Seth Green is the world's first trusted authority on cutting-edge direct response marketing, a best-selling author, and the only three-time Marketer of the Year nominee. On the podcast, Kevin and Seth interview sharkpreneurs who share straight talk on what it takes to explode your business. Why do so many businesses struggle while others seem to explode overnight? Do you wish you had the secret to this type of exponential growth? Now, I've scaled more than 20 businesses to over $100 million, and it's not just luck. In my new book with Mark Tim, Mentor to Millions, you'll learn the repeatable framework I use in all my business ventures for massive success. Order at KevinMentor.com and get over $1,000 in bonuses. Head to KevinMentor.com. Welcome to the Sharkpreneur Podcast. This is your co-host, Seth Green. Today, I have the good fortune to be joined by Les McEwen. He is the president and CEO of Predictable Success where he advises CEOs and senior leaders of organizations how to achieve scalable, sustainable growth and speaks to Fortune 500 companies about his breakthrough strategies. Les, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here, Seth. Hi, everybody. All right, let's go back in time. How did you get started? I was originally, career-wise, a CPA, a British equivalent, what they called back there, a chartered accountant, living in Northern Ireland in the midst of a civil war. And... I really got into accounting because I, I was advised it was a good way to learn about business, which I was sort of fascinated with, cheekily or stupidly or something. Um, I started trying to help people rather than just doing their tax returns and stuff and uh, tried to uh, help people get started with business. And back then that meant getting them a bank loan, you know, something to some premises maybe. And I, I just built this reputation of being a good go-to guy if you were thinking of starting a business. And people started, uh, after a little while, to actually ask me if I would be interested in helping them joining their team, their startup team. So for about 10 years, I got to cherry pick six or eight business, new businesses every year. And before I was 35, I had started 42 businesses with other people. Uh, two of them failed. Learned a lot out of out of that uh, Northern Ireland small community. Uh, failure there was a very visible thing. Uh, the rest of them just mostly just sold them back to the to the funding uh, part, other funding partners. A couple of them did very well, but I began to see some recurring patterns. Seth, uh, just even a dumb Irishman is going to notice some similarities when you do something over forty times. And I started to see these repeating patterns and began to doodle them out. Fast forwards, you know, twenty years, I. I think I've seen the patterns of growth that apply for any organization, for profit or not for profit, up to a certain stage, which was limited by the size of the businesses in the community I was, I grew up in, well known. And so I moved out here to the US 20 years ago, um, largely, uh, not solely, but largely because I had the opportunity to work with very large organizations, uh, Microsoft, US Army, American Express. Harvard University, and I was able to prove this model, which I call predictable success, out that it worked at scale. And having found the model, I started teaching it, and that's what I've been doing for the last the last 20 years. Well, congratulations. I'm sure the longer version is obviously in one of the books you've written. We talked about uh, the book, Predictable Success. There's the synergist, there's do lead, share your vision, 
Um, obviously, I'm sure there's more coming. Let's talk a little bit about who the types of clients are that you're working with and the breakthroughs you're helping them have. Uh, I work with two distinct groups of people. On the one side, there are typically founder owners, people who started their own venture. Could be for-profit or not-for-profit. About 40% or so of my business, of my uh, clients are uh, cause of faith-based NGOs, charitable organizations. Uh, so one group are the founders who have reached a stage in growth that I call Whitewater. And essentially what happens in Whitewater is the fun days that we had taught us a whole bunch of stuff about how to lead a business and grow a business. And that stuff, which was really good, stops being good. And we and uh, so there's a there's a decision to be made at that point. Do I press forward to the next stage in growth, which I call predictable success, which really gives us scalability, or do is my heart in going back to the way we were in the fun stage, go back to being a boutique business, for example? And so I, I work with founder owners in that group, helping them a make that well a realize what's going on because they actually just think their business is dying. Uh, realize what's going on and then decide where they want to go to forward or back and then how to do that. And then the other group, the other sort of half or so of the uh, folks that I work with are typically executives uh, in much larger organizations who have reached their, their business, reached that stage, which I call predictable success, but has now fallen into decline into the stage I call treadmill. And the treadmill stage is really when uh, we're just coming in and clocking it in and, you know, systems rule and we do everything by the book and we're losing our mojo and our innovation and our creativity. So on the one hand, the founder owners who need to bring systems and processes to grow. On the other hand, executives uh, in departments, divisions and organizations that need to lift their foot off the systems and processes a bit. So what are some of the biggest issues, what are the biggest mistakes you see those businesses making that you're able to help them with? Self-awareness is the biggest thing, Seth. Um, for most of us, you know, we, the, starting and growing one business is, a, you know, a lifetime's event. One of the things just doing something over and over and over again teaches you is that there are repeating patterns going on. And so for most of the founder owner group, they actually fear, as I mentioned earlier, when they hit this whitewater stage that they think they're going to die. Their business is just dying. Their baby is, you know, falling apart and not recognizing that Actually, if you do the right things, you're about to get into the best stage of growth and development that you can possibly get into. So self-awareness is one thing. The second, uh, the second thing is part of that is not being self-aware enough to know whether or not you personally, as a leader, can make the transitions required, uh, whichever stage you're at. Uh, you know, there are seven stages that any business will go through overall, and every one of those transitions from one stage to the next requires a shift in your leadership style. And not a lot of people can make all of those shifts. And there's often a point at which, you know, a founder just can't become CEO, put it that way. They're just, their heart is to be the founder. And like I said, it doesn't have to be a, a business. Same thing happened in churches, you know, got to be the founding pastor when the church needs you to get beyond that and you know just become the lead pastor so making that leadership mind shift change is the biggest challenge i believe all right and then how are you because obviously the systems that got them to the first level won't get them to the second level won't get them to the next level how do you help them 
um, break what's not broken or what hasn't broken yet, reinvent, redeploy so that it can support the next level of growth that you're helping them generate? There's a, a great question, Seth. Um, and the first go round is the toughest one. So systems and process are just going to get completely in the way. Even through the first growth stage, which I call fun, we'll just have enough systems and processes to keep us out of jail. So if somebody filing our taxes, with somebody making sure we're, we're you know, on the right side of any health and safety laws, that's about it. The very first need for systemic systems and processes comes at that whitewater stage that I talked about. And that's the toughest one because recognizing that uh, systems and processes need to be a fundamental part of who we are if we want to grow to the next stage uh, is really tough. What most founder owners want to have happen is put enough systems and processes in to get us through this, then let's forget about them. And also, by the way, don't let them impinge on my personal freedom. Um, you know, the number one reason people start new ventures is for freedom and autonomy. It's not for the money. Money comes second. Every survey anybody ever makes, freedom and autonomy is the desire to do things my own way. You know, it's been said that an entrepreneur is somebody who'll stop working 40 hours a week for somebody else to work 80 hours a week for themselves. And that's true. They want freedom and autonomy to do things their own way. And systems and processes just feel claustrophobic. They feel they're gonna they're gonna mess with my mojo, with who I am, with my special sauce. But once they, you can get a founder owner to see that, the second and subsequent changes are not just so big a lift, but it is important, you're quite right, to recognize that, okay, what I'm gonna do now, three years from now, I may need to repeat this on a whole different level because we're scaling even further. What do you like best about what you do? I love it all, Seth. I love doing it. I love the people that I work with. It's a great privilege. I get to, you know, to learn more about my own model. Every client I work with, you know, there's something new comes out. There's another, because I didn't invent this, you know, I, no interns were used or harmed in developing the predictable success model. It's all observation based. And I get to observe more and more all the time. So, I, you know, I, I, I work with every imaginable industry manufacturing service, as I mentioned, for-profit, not-for-profit. It's just an enormous privilege. The entire thing is great. The only bit that I don't like is whenever the muse comes on me and, and for some reason or other, I feel like I've got to write another book and then I go through three months of absolute hell on a stick. But apart from that, I love it all. And can you talk a little bit about some examples? Um, you can withhold identity if you need to of like what a business came to you for, what their issue was, how you helped them solve it, and kind of what the magical transformation was that you become so famous for? Yeah, well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a sort of a hybrid of that. I, you're quite right. I don't like to um, identify without permission the individual clients that I work with. But, you know, classically, it's uh, somebody who has started something and been really successful. They've found that the team that they're working with is now struggling to execute. So, I, I mean, I'll, I'll blur over just a few of the details, but a good Midwestern company provides websites for non-federal government agencies. So all they do is put in websites and associated um, services for, you know, your, if your uh, local town council has a meeting and they need to put the agenda up online and make it available to people, they provide all of that at every level apart from federal. And of course, as you might imagine, last year was just an enormous impetus in their market because all of these town councils started administering all sorts of stuff virtually. So their business went through the roof. 
CEO there's a person I'd worked with in the past instantly recognized we are accelerating into whitewater we're about to hit it big time um, and so I did what I normally do which is I, I come in for a day I spend a day with the what I call T1 which is the senior leadership level it might be two people it might be 20 people but I work with the senior leadership team we agree where they are on the life cycle agree where they want to get to and then I use a diagnostic process that goes through and I'm not going to uh, bore everybody with all of the details but we go through 13 what I call imperatives they're, they're areas that you've got to get right they encompass such things as structure of your org chart alignment internally in the organization how you're hiring how you're training and uh, mentoring and coaching people there's 13 imperatives and what we identify from those 13 are just two or at most three which on the Pareto principle, you know, 80% of the result comes from 20% of the application. What are the three, two, or at most three imperatives that if we work on them over the next six months, will do most to get through Whitewater? In their case, they needed to rework their org chart almost completely uh, because of the growth that they had and were experiencing. And we also worked in an area that I call lateral management. It's one of those imperatives. And lateral management is the ability of, of uh, senior leaders and managers to not just manage their team vertically, which is what they got hired to be managers for, so sales managers there to manage the sales team. In Whitewater, a key skill has to develop, which is the ability to manage laterally. How do I manage with my peers? How do sales and marketing work together to produce our cash flow? <laughs> you know, how do legal and admin work together in order to make the back office work really, really well? So we worked on org chart, we worked on lateral management. I came back four times and uh, these days coming back means we fired up uh, Zoom again. Uh, but we did four days of work, two days in each of those uh, uh, two imperatives. And they got back, as the CEO likes to say, he says, I can feel the steering wheel now. Uh, he, you know, when he turns the steering wheel, the car goes around the corner. Whereas previously he felt like he was wearing two pairs of uh, oven mitts and just sort of lost that ability to direct the the car. So that's typically what I do. Typically, of course. Now, you've worked with so many different phases of business and so many different types of business in different industries. Um, who's an ideal client for you? Who do you like working with the most? It's actually more the person than the business. I'm atheistic as to what the business itself is. And in fact, one of the things that um, is a little counterintuitive uh, almost every time somebody's thinking of working with me, the first thing that they'll ask me is, do you have experience in my industry? And what they want to hear is yes. Uh, and uh, what I'd like to tell them is, you know, that would be like me needing a brain surgeon and saying, oh, wait a minute, have you ever operated on someone with an Irish accent whose favorite city is Paris? No. Oh, okay. Well, then you're not the brain surgeon. <laughs> you need somebody who knows how to operate on brains. And it's actually better not to have what I call the curse of knowledge. Yep. So um, anyway, what that nets down to is my preference is based around the individual. I, I want to work with people who are self-aware, uh, the type of person who wants to develop as a leader. I, I, thankfully, at my stage in my career where if I don't feel I'm going to make a difference, I don't need to do the work. And so uh, people who think they know it all, uh, people who think, you know, not if it's not invented here, it's not going to work. Uh, that's not my cup of tea. I, I work with folks. And, and thankfully, in my world, they're self-selecting. You know, anybody who's going to 
I'm going to say pick up the phone, but who picks up the phone these days? Uh, anybody who's going to, you know, talk to me is almost certainly in the former camp, thank goodness. You are a prolific author. What are three of your favorite books and you can't quote yourself? Uh, well, it wouldn't be hard because I don't read business books. Um, I, I don't find them particularly, uh, most of them are not particularly good. Um, as far as authors are concerned, I, I'm more of a topic junkie. So at the minute, <laughs> I, I get down rabbit holes like a lot of us do. You know, I know it, 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 you know, it's like, Seth, you go online and you think you're shopping for a pair of shoes and before you know it, you're watching, you know, cute bunny videos on <laughs> YouTube. Uh, and my book reading is very similar. So uh, I'm reading a book called The Honorable Company at the minute. It's all about the first ever joint stock a company um, based in London, but it's not about the business side. It's about how the eventually turned into the British Empire uh, in India. So it's a historical, factual book. Uh, I would recommend uh, anything by a guy called Christopher Alexander. Uh, he writes uh, his most famous book is called the, the Timeless Act of Being, and it's about how to build. It's literally about how to construct towns, villages for human life that bring us together and doesn't they don't push us apart and all of his work is really really good do you find yourself running into as each business as the business goes through each stage that you talk about across all industries i would imagine you see similar issues going from one stage to another what are some of those you know traps that we get pulled into well, the, you're quite right, uh, Seth, that in making the transition from one stage to another, about 80% of the of the issues, the turbulence that occurs, are repeatable. They're, they're, they're part of a pattern. And so knowing that means that you can work on There's always some individual things that are unique to the specific organization. But the, uh, one of the most common ones is, you know, Jim Collins in his books, Good to Great, Built to Last, etc. He talks yeah. about... He talks about finding the uh, making sure you get the right people on the bus, which is uh, very good advice. The issue is that in a couple of the transitions, Whitewater is is one of them. It's a, a, a most classic example. You've got your business. It's maybe got 20, 30, 40, 50 people. It's in that fun stage where we're just saying yes to everything and then somehow making it happen. We reach every Friday night, righteously exhausted. We're having beer busts because we don't have an HR uh, division yet telling us not to and then we hit whitewater one of the things that happens is when you go into whitewater the bus if you will the business that goes into whitewater sort of like going into a tunnel what comes out the other end it's not the same bus it's not even a bus anymore it's like a drone or something and one of the hardest things to accept is that what that means is that some of the people who are absolutely the right people for the bus don't have a place in the drone or whatever our new uh, vehicle is. And that's one of the toughest things, particularly with you got a founder owner, often they'll have a couple of people uh, who have become big dogs in the organization, been with them for a long time, built a lot of sweat equity. They're the ones who, you know, were there at evenings, weekends, give up, you know, their, their kids recital or soccer games or whatever to build the business, build a lot of autonomy, a lot of independence, and then, we start implementing these systems and processes. Are you kidding me, boss? We're losing our identity. We're losing our culture. And I've never, ever, ever worked with any organization, business or not-for-profit, that has gone into Whitewater and come out the other side and has kept the same 
cast of characters. There's always been at least one individual, sometimes more than that, who for whom it's just not right. Their, their, their heart isn't in this. They want to go back and work in that fun environment. And that's right and good for them. So that's a, that's a tough part. With all the success you've achieved across all these different industries, what is your biggest challenge now? I'm spending a lot of time taking um, what I do online. I'm building online courses. And one of the things that I've, I find very challenging is that the model is non-linear. It's not just, you know, do A, then B, then C. There's not a recipe that you can apply. You've got to be able to move backwards and forth. So in practical terms, here's a really specific practical thing. Uh, in the before times when there used to be conventions and stuff where a lot of people turned up, uh, I did a lot of public speaking. I'd, I'd, I'd be keynote speaker, keynote speaker at Inc. Uh, 5,000, uh, six times. And uh, one of the things I always used to amuse people is, I don't use PowerPoint, I use flip charts, like 1950s technology, real, I mean, and I'd say to the event organizers, there's a multi-million dollar event, 5,000 people in the room, uh, they'd say, what's your AB requirements? I said, two big flip charts. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Um, but it worked brilliantly because flip charts are non-linear. You can go from one idea to the next and then back to the other one. It's much harder to do with, on PowerPoint. So I'm moving the, all of the teaching that I do onto online courses it has been a challenge because they sort of demand to be linear, right? You take this module and this module. But I've made a magnificent discovery in uh, an electronic whiteboard. It's right behind me here. And it allows me to do everything that I did on flip charts. So I'm really, that challenge has become uh, quite an exciting uh, opportunity to, to innovate, which I'm enjoying a lot. Well, congratulations on the iteration and the evolution and all of the success you've had over the decades. What else do you want to share that I didn't think to ask you? Not a lot, Seth. Um, uh, I've been here for in the U.S. for 22 years. My accent has, I think, given up its attempt to relocate. So um, what I've decided instead of fighting it is just to accept uh, that I'm, a, I'm now a mutt. I'm officially a mutt. Uh, and I now have a British passport, an Irish passport, and an American passport. Got my US citizenship a few years ago. And uh, I will say it's been a challenging time for us over the last uh, few years, both in the UK and here in the US. Uh, but it's been a delight to be able to call the US my adopted home. Well, for our folks who are watching or listening and want to learn more about your process and how it works, where is the best place for us to send them? PredictableSuccess.com. All right. This has been Seth Green for Sharkpreneur, Les McEwen of PredictableSuccess.com. Les, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Seth. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody, for watching or listening. We'll see you next time. Do you need money to fund your idea, product, or service? Are you ready to take your business to the next level but need capital to get it done? Kevin Harrington has heard more than 50,000 pitches and knows how to help you make the perfect pitch to get the funding for your entrepreneurial dream. He's distilled the process down in his perfect pitch cheat sheet, and it's yours for free. Just text PITCH to him right now at 727-888-2100. Text PITCH to 727-888-2100 right now and claim your free perfect pitch cheat sheet. Text PITCH to 727-888-2100 to start funding your dream today. This show has been produced by Market Domination, LLC.
To discover how you can have your own show completely done for you and turn it into a real published book and become the authority in your marketplace, go to www.marketdominationllc.com slash podcast offer. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.